In recent years, the Earth has been struck by natural disaster after natural disaster. After a summer of devastating storms, ferocious wildfires, and scorching heat, Greece is facing a war with climate change. The World Meteorological Organization is still studying Freddy, but says it appears to have set records. It lasted more than five weeks and is likely the longest tropical cyclone on record, and it may also be the strongest. In Vermont tonight, massive piles of mud, streets still filled with water, and a rescue operation that can't stand down. Right now, at least a thousand people are still missing as the deadly wildfires burn. New York City under a state of emergency tonight with 23 million people under flood watches across New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. But some say there's more to these disasters than what we hear on the news. So-called natural disasters are actually shaped by decades of human decisions and indecision. We play a role in everything from how frequently they occur to whom they impact most. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we look at why disasters happen the way they do. Later in the show, we'll hear the science behind the recent increase in extreme weather. But first, Andy Horowitz. He's Associate Professor of History at UConn and the Connecticut State Historian. His work looks at disasters and the broader implications that they hold for society. He's author of the award-winning book, Katrina, a history, 1915 to 2015. Professor Horowitz, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks so much for having me. It's a privilege to be with you. I'm excited to talk about the book because it does tap into what unfortunately too often gets overlooked as not just a piece in American history, but connection to so many other areas. Before we talk about the book, I want to talk about your work more broadly because you're an historian and you often focus on disasters. What does it mean for an historian to think about disasters? You know, when when most people hear that word disaster, they, uh, I think it calls to mind a kind of a short story, an acute episode, a kind of emergency or a disruption, to use a good word for this context, something that comes out of nowhere. And, you know, like a lightning strike. Um, an event of pure chance. But historians, you know, we don't like to think about pure chance. We're allergic to the idea that something can come out of nowhere. Uh, historians believe that everything has a history. And so my interest as a historian is to see how disasters have histories, to see how their causes and consequences unfold over time and often over much longer periods of time than we commonly imagine. Uh, you know, I, I give this example sometimes of the kind of work I do I said, you know, a, a disaster might be a lightning strike. If you heard that I was struck by lightning, you might think that it was just bad luck, cosmic bad luck. But if you widen the timeline a little bit and discovered that, you know, it was pouring rain and it was thundering and my wife sent me outside holding a tall metal rod, it really changes totally your understanding of what had happened to me and the sort of questions you'd want to ask about it. It's no longer a story about the weather so much as a question about power. Um, so that that point of view really kind of animates the work I do as a, as a historian of disasters. I want to focus on the title of your book, Katrina History 1915 to 2015, because often when we think about an event like Katrina that happens in a particular year, that's where we focus. And instead, what you're helping the reader to understand is that context, that history, the choices that lead us to that moment that shape and define the aftermath, 
but also help us to see the very long connections that we need to recognize connected to these events. Why the choice to start in 1915? You know, I think consistent with this idea, just with saying that disasters should be short stories. I think when we talk about Katrina, when most listeners hear that word, they will think about that terrible day, August 29, 2005, when a storm called Katrina was in the Gulf of Mexico, pushed a storm surge against the federal levee system meant to protect New Orleans, uh, and the levee system collapsed, flooding 80% of New Orleans and all of St. Bernard Parish, the county to the east, um, killing hundreds of people and leaving tens of thousands of more people homeless. Uh, we will think about, most people will think about the days that followed when there was no help to be had. Uh, that is kind of the whole story that most people have when they think of Katrina. It calls to mind a terrible few days a long time ago. But I find that that short version of the story doesn't allow me to answer the questions that really bothered me and can, you know, nagged me for many years about Katrina, including some very basic questions like who lived in harm's way and why did they live there? And so, like you said, I ended up starting my account in 1915. I start with another hurricane, um, that was it was called the Great Hurricane of 1915. It didn't really have a name um, and it was largely forgotten, but it arrived and made landfall in Louisiana, just as New Orleans had finished building this massive drainage system, a system of pumps. Um, New Orleans, since its colonial founding in 1718, wa uh, was built along the highest ground in the area, which is near the Mississippi River. Everything farther away from the river is basically swamp. It was flood prone, you couldn't build there. This drainage system was meant to drain those swamps and encourage development. And when the storm came, even though parts of the city flooded and some people drowned, engineers and many others in New Orleans believed the city had passed a defining test. In fact, um, the newspaper a few days after the hurricane said the record shows that New Orleans is stormproof. And the city bet on those drainage pumps and, and expanded into the former swamps. And the neighborhoods that were developed after 1915 were long the most desirable neighborhoods in the city. These were single family homes, the place that you might, if you were a returning veteran from World War II, you might use the GI Bill to move into these places. You know, Connecticut listeners could think about Hamden, for example, or West Hartford, desirable neighborhoods. But from the perspective of 2005, most of the buildings built before 1915 in New Orleans did not flood, but most of the buildings built after 1915 did flood. So this told me that in order to understand Katrina's impact, I had to start the story nearly a century before. And then just to say, I had to widen the frame on the other end as well, because if I wanted to answer even a simple question about who returned, that answer is not embedded in those terrible few days. You have to look into the future and here, uh, you know, really one of the most shocking for me and unsettling discoveries in the book was that the water itself, the flood, didn't really explain who was able to return home. I just kind of alluded to how the flood didn't wash over black New Orleans as opposed to white New Orleans or rich New, poor New Orleans as opposed to rich New Orleans. It flooded 20th century New Orleans. But that kind of broadly shared challenge, the ground just totally shifted afterwards. And so from the perspective of 10 years later, long after the national attention had moved on, while the white population of the city was only down around 8,000, the black population of New Orleans was down 92,000 people. 
And that vast racial disparity is not explainable at all by the water. We have to look at inequalities that existed before the storm and the suite of recovery policies, so-called, put in place afterwards to make sense of what happened. I want to talk about those policies because you have mentioned a number of policies that made certain people, certain communities more vulnerable than others before the storm. It also meant that when we look at the aftermath and and how people were affected, not just who was affected, but how they were affected, those policies come into play about who can leave safely what people leave with, where they go, and where they can return. Thinking about the aftermath, what are one or two policies that you say really highlight what happened here and that we need to pay attention to it in a more deliberate way? Sure. I'll give you um, two examples that I think make make intuitive sense and are not just about New Orleans. Um, One is just you mentioned being able to leave safely. A hurricane is sort of unique as a uh, a kind of na- emergency of this kind, because you get a few days warning. Um, most listeners, if they heard that their house was going to flood in three days, would not be home in three days. But that presupposes the resources to leave and the uh, play, you know the idea that you have somewhere to go, and that can be a very expensive proposition. Um, there's a lot of talk at the time in 2005 and still when other similar events happen that people choose to stay. But for many people, it's no choice at all. There were around 130,000 people in New Orleans when the levees broke. And that's almost exactly the number of people who don't have access to a private car in New Orleans, which included, I think, a third of African-American households in the city. Um, Of course, people with cars, it wasn't that they were just smart or resourceful. They relied on the hundreds of millions of dollars of investment that the federal government made in building highways and roads. So they had an evacuation plan that was provided for them by the federal government that they were able to use people who relied on other forms of public transportation, like cars and buses and streetcars and trains, they didn't, you know, the federal government made no provision for them. And so they were left to experience the storm firsthand. So that's one way in which inequality and infrastructure, you know, makes uh, an event much more difficult for some and much easier for others. But some things truly have nothing to do with the weather at all. So to give an example in terms of who could come back, um, After the Katrina flood, there was a mandatory evacuation order in New Orleans. Uh, So everybody left. Now, it turns out, in in part because of a series of processes that I explore in great detail in the book, many of New Orleans' um, most disadvantaged residents, thinking here in particular about residents of public housing in New Orleans, did not flood because, as I said, the neighborhoods that flooded were often very desirable neighborhoods. So uh, the city was constructed to build public housing in parts of the city that were seen as undesirable, near the port, near heavy infrastructure. So public housing didn't flood, maybe 5,000 public housing apartments. But while the mandatory evacuation order was in place, the Housing Authority of New Orleans spent money to build up the fences around those unflooded apartments, closed public housing, and never reopened it. Two years later, the city council voted to demolish all 5,000 public units Um, 5,000 units of public housing in New Orleans. So those families, even though they were untouched by the floodwater, couldn't come home as a result of this thing called Katrina. But we have to be very careful when we use that word because the storm called Katrina is not the cause for many of these effects that we've come to associate with it. I think that blaming this on the storm 
makes it easier for some people to excuse it away, because then it appears like it was something that was beyond our control. And really what you just laid out for us is that, no, these were intentional decisions about, you know, resources and economic development and how people would rebuild in those areas that were very much about policy choices and in some ways non-choices, options not to act in order to do that. I want to ask you this question that I often grapple with thinking about the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and other events that disproportionately affect people. What do you think we owe to the people of New Orleans? And I'm often thinking about African-Americans who were displaced and could never go back because there was nowhere to go back to. I know there was a lot of division about the role of government. What do you think we owe people in this aftermath? It's, you know, both such a difficult question and in some ways the only important question. Um, Even thinking about who the we is And your question, what do we owe them? You know, I lived in New Orleans for 10 years. I'm uh, not African-American, nor was I. I'm from Connecticut and glad that I didn't know Katrina firsthand. But I do try to um, not think about, and I want to be careful how I say this, because, of course, the impacts were so, I mean, the experience of life in America is so fractured, according to lines of race and class, that our experiences are fundamentally different. But I also fight really hard against the impulse to think about Katrina or any other of these, you know, analog events is happening to other people. You know, I think one thing that we owe them is understanding that we are them and that we're in this together and that we need to, um, you know, attend to our neighbors as if they're our neighbors and attend to our family as if they're our family. Um, And that is a kind of, you know, it can either sound like I think a really pat answer, but it also is a kind of, um, empathetic vision that is often totally absent from U.S. policymaking. And I think in its broadest sense, um, we ought to aspire for that on a much more um, granular level, just to get at what you were saying about, you know, trying to blame the weather for things that people did. I do think that as a historian writing about Katrina, I felt like what I owed Katrina's victims was at the very least an honest accounting of what had happened, a sense that nothing here was inevitable and that I could name the people who put in place the policies that made it easier or harder to come home. Um, and I think at the very least, as a historian, I owe people that, that truth. And that was what I tried to give. Coming up, Andy Horwitz shares why he's sometimes uncomfortable with the word disaster itself. I came to think that that word disaster, that idea, actually had a much more to do about normalizing suffering than it did out of making a special case. And later, we'll discuss scientists' efforts to mitigate climate change. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. 
Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're looking at the way that our decisions shape natural disasters. We've been talking to UConn professor and Connecticut State historian Andy Horowitz about his book, Katrina, A History, 1915 to 2015. The worst of the storm has now reached New Orleans. This is the moment we've been talking about, dreading, uh, anticipating now for some days. Seeks substantial cover now. Winds are gusting to over 120 miles per hour. There are reports from New Orleans of uh, people trapped in buildings that have come down around them. In late August 2005, the city of New Orleans was underwater. The hurricane devastated the city and the surrounding area with nearly 2,000 people dying because of the storm and what followed. New Orleans is called the Big Bowl, a lake to the north, a river to the south, and canals on both sides. Most of the land in between is below sea level. When Katrina breached the levees that held the water back, the bowl was swamped. Levees across New Orleans failed and billions of gallons of water poured into the city. For weeks, about 80% of New Orleans was flooded and tens of thousands of people couldn't evacuate in time. Most of those people were African-American and also those experiencing poverty. It left them with very little food, shelter, and other basic needs. Van Newkirk II is host of the Atlantic's Floodlines podcast. He describes it in this way. Hurricane Katrina was not the disaster. The disaster was what happened after. Many things happened after, including something called disaster capitalism. Ask Professor Horowitz about that term and how it played out during the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Disaster capitalism is the idea that in the context of an emergency, like you know a flood or a fire, um, that there will be an opportunity created for capitalists, for developers, for speculators to come in and profit uh, on changes that might otherwise be impossible if there hadn't been such a significant disruption. And, you know, you can see it lurking about, for example, the story I gave before about public housing, where um, even though those sort of changes happened in cities across the United States, they certainly happened here in Connecticut, uh, the fulcrum point at which public housing was closed in New Orleans was in the context of a mandatory evacuation. Um, so that's what disaster capitalism means. I to be honest, kind of shy away from using that term in my own work, because um, as a scholar of disaster, this may sound curious, but I've come to be uncomfortable with just the name, the idea of disaster altogether. I don't know what kind of work it does, as we might say in a classroom, what kind of work does that word do? You know, there's always people in the casket business. And the point is there's capitalism all the time. Um, so what does it do to affirm the idea that there are special moments in history called disasters? And every other time, 
is normal. And in fact, you know, I'll just say another word on this. Um, if you think about what a disaster means, it means a special kind of suffering. And it's a special kind of suffering that we as a society deem illegitimate. So, you know, if somebody loses their house because it's flooded, we collectively name that a disaster and say, well, this person is entitled to a kind of aid. You know, we have to give them flood relief. That's no way for a person to go homeless. But by making a special case out of flooding, we then say that actually it's normal for someone to be left homeless because their mortgage went underwater. Even though losing your job because your company moved somewhere else, uh, you have about as much control over that as you do the weather. And you're homeless either way. But we fixate on the special case. You can see it all over the place. Just to give another example so listeners might understand what I mean better. Um, when Joe Biden was um, campaigning for president, he said that all COVID treatment should be free. And this made, I think, a, a kind of empathetic sense to people because it said um, no one should be too poor to survive COVID. Great. But does that mean that people should be too poor to survive cancer? You know, why is one the special case? Why do we name some things emergencies, some things crises, some things disasters, and other things normal? And I came to think that that word disaster, that idea, actually had a much more to do about normalizing suffering than it did out of making a special case. So to come back to your question about disaster capitalism, I, I see the processes that people use that phrase want to call attention to. But I think, frankly, we should talk more less about disaster capitalism, more about capitalism, if that's the concern. Who cares what the weather is? Well, I also think that when we think of it in that way, there are also people who say in the aftermath, is this an opportunity to make things anew? Is it an opportunity for community to define itself for itself and think about how do we bring goodness out of this? by elevating the voices of those who are most affected. And you use the example of COVID and the pandemic and how many people said it shouldn't have taken a pandemic for you to realize that there are people in this country who don't have enough to eat or that there are families who rely on schools for their kids to have access. Your book focuses on this period between 1915 and 2015, but I know that you are someone who still cares deeply about the city and still keeps abreast of what's happening there. What do you see in New Orleans in 2023 that is still connected to this aftermath, but perhaps could be an instructive lesson as we think about the future? You know, back in 2005, certainly for those of us, you know, I, I among them in Connecticut, people elsewhere who experienced Katrina primarily on TV, it was, I think, easy, too easy to write it off as an exception sort of suggested through our whole conversation that the whole category of disaster is designed to make an exception. But Katrina in particular, you may remember people said, um, you know, this would never happen in New York City. And the idea behind that, I think then, was that first of all, New Orleans occupies a kind of unique place in the American imagination. It's a black city, it's a Caribbean city. Some people say it's south of the South. It seems to be on the margins of American life. Um, and, it's structured in a way, certainly in the imagination and in reality is to be full of many disadvantaged people. And so um, there was a thought that, oh, you know, if New York City was drowning, the aid would be more forthcoming. But then a few years later, there was Hurricane Sandy. And now just recently, New York City flooded again. And by the way, it was some of the wealthier neighborhoods. And it was the Staten Island during Sandy, the whitest part of New York City. It was now the wealthiest parts of Brooklyn that flooded recently. Um, 
So I think, you know, New Orleans, uh, Katrina kind of to, to dismiss it as something that only affected people on the outskirts of American life is to really not heed the siren of its warning. And New Orleans continues to offer that warning. You know, right now, um, we're a couple of days away in New Orleans from not having any drinking water because uh, mismanagement of infrastructure and the, the drought caused, you know, climate crisis induced drought is um, <laughs> causing the seawater to intrude into the drinking water supply, which is going to, uh, the salt water is likely to cause lead to leach from the drinking water pipes. And that's the process that happened in Flint, Michigan, that caused the lead poisoning crisis there, is salt water coming in off the roads. So in all of these ways, New Orleans and Katrina, rather than receding into the past, just continues to look to me like a defining opening scene for 21st century America. And we talked before, you know, about us and them and who are the we that we are talking about when we ask what we can do for each other. Um, I think to sort of to, to say, you know, oh, the fire was just in Hawaii. The flood was just in Louisiana. The flood was just in Houston. It was only Staten Island. It wasn't Manhattan. You know, at a certain point, you cut off too many limbs and there's nothing left. You know, I think that what New Orleans offers is the opportunity to think about whether we're going to engage the challenges that we face collectively or whether we're, we collectively will succumb to them. As we come to the close of our time together, I really appreciate your work as an historian to help us see ourselves in one another, to help us see our place in that collective history and what we contribute to it. And in that way, it also becomes a responsibility to tell our stories so that future generations can understand it, but even right where we are, that we understand what we are part of. You are the new Connecticut State Historian. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thinking about that calling in terms of how you approach history, how you bring people into that understanding, what are you most excited for in carrying out this role? Well, I think, and thank you for mentioning it and for the congratulations. You know, it, it's, an, it's an incredible job and a daunting one. Part of what I want to do as state historian is the same thing I tried to do as a regular old historian, was just to try to you know, um, give a sense of history to events that often seem to be without precedent. You know, Katrina didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of a century of American urban policy. And that can just make the world make more sense. It shows us how change happens, how change is possible. And I'd like to provide that kind of, help to provide that kind of usable past here in Connecticut as we make sense of things. But on, on, a, on a broader level, on the way that you were speaking just a moment ago, you know, I really see my role as trying to encourage uh, communities as they engage in acts of collective autobiography, to try to tell stories about ourselves and our state that we can see ourselves in, to ask questions from the perspective of the present that have meaning to us now, to ask those questions about the past so that we can better understand who we are and where we are. We appreciate the work that you're doing, and I can think of no greater time than now for us to commit to that. Andy Horowitz is Associate Professor of History at UConn, the Connecticut State historian and author of the award-winning book, Katrina, A History, 1915 to 2015. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again for having me. To learn more about the new Connecticut State historian, Andy Horowitz, you can listen to an interview with him on another Connecticut public show, Where We Live. Professor Horowitz was a guest on the program on October 20th, and we'll have a link to that on our show page. Coming up, 
A professor at the University of Michigan explains how climate change can cause both an increase in flooding and an increase in droughts. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. It may feel like the weather has gotten more extreme in recent years, and scientists say that's because it has. Intense droughts, wildfires, and flooding have all become more common, largely because of human-caused global warming. UN Chief Antonio Guterres spoke about this last year in recognition of International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction. Climate disasters are hurting countries and economies like never before. Ever-rising greenhouse gas emissions are supercharging extreme weather events across the planet. I saw firsthand the devastation unleashed by the recent floods in Pakistan. These increasing calamities cost lives and hundreds of billions of dollars in loss and damage. Half of humanity is already in the danger zone the world is failing to invest in protecting the lives and livelihoods of those on the front line. Those who have done the least to cause the climate crisis are paying the highest price. Here to talk more about climate change and how it affects extreme weather events is Mohamed Ambadi. He's assistant professor in the Department of Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering at the University of Michigan. Professor Ambadi, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. You know, your work is so timely, and I want our audience to get a sense of your scholarship and how it really feeds into a lot of the discussions that are happening. A big piece of your work looks at how climate change, something that we've known about for a while, is shaping extreme weather events. Let's start with very basic. What do we mean when we say extreme weather events? Um, so what we mean about with extreme events uh, are events such as uh, floods, um, which are often caused by heavy storms. Uh, we also uh, talk about droughts, heat waves, uh, wildfires. So all of these are examples of extreme events. Um, and a big concern in the climate science community is how climate change and anthropogenic global warming is shifting the characteristics of those events. Um, and what I mean by the characteristics are things such as the intensity, um, so how intense and strong those events are, the frequency um, of their occurrence, as well as their duration. So all of these three aspects are uh, particularly important. 
it's to be frank and in a non-technical, non-academic term, it's scary to think about the things that you've just mentioned. We're seeing greater intensity, greater duration, um, in some ways, less ability to prepare or what we thought we could do to prepare. And yet we're also seeing the intensity of of these events, the occurrences of these events happening in particular places uh, and having really devastating effects. Are there particular examples that you could share with us to say, this is a key example we need to focus on of how these things are playing out right now? Right. So if you we look at the example of heavy storms and associated flooding, um, I think the year 2023 has been a very uh, remarkable year in terms of uh, all of the unprecedented flooding events that we have seen uh, almost across all continents in the world. Um, so earlier in 2023, we had extreme and severe flooding in California. Um, and then after that, we had uh, extreme uh, flooding in Asia and the Himalayas regions. Um, we have also seen unprecedented flooding in the Mediterranean region um, in countries like Greece, Turkey, um, and uh, and Libya. And the example in Libya was, uh, in fact, uh, very, very severe. And there have been casualties um, and, and deaths of thousands of people uh, due to those flooding events. Um, so, so this is what is happening with flooding. But if we look at droughts or heat waves, uh, we do see this unmistakably increasing trend um, in terms of their intensity and, and frequency. And it's not just this year, but uh, it's in, in all recent years. Um, another thing that people will remember 2023 for um, is that it has been a record-breaking year in terms of hot temperatures in many regions around the world. Um, and uh, a lot of people in the climate science community are arguing that that is not really news because we know temperatures are going up. Um, and so we should really stop thinking about, well, this year is a record-breaking because each coming year will break these records yeah, even more. I want you to help me understand something. You mentioned California as you were talking about, you know, where we're seeing these occurrences. How is it that we can experience drought at the same time that we're seeing these extreme rainfall? So some people may say, you know, that doesn't make sense. If we're getting lots of rainfall, how can we still have droughts? How can we still have areas of the world, not just of the U.S., areas of the world where people have to ration their water access or where people are making decisions about who will have access. How do these two things happen in the same sorts of spaces? Yes, that is that is an excellent question. Um, because when we say that there are there is an increasing trend in the intensity of heavy storms, um, and at the same time there is an increasing trend in droughts, a lot of people have difficulty reconciling those statements. Um, now, uh, what? Maybe we should take a step back here and talk a little bit about how global warming is leading to intense uh, extreme precipitation, and that will help us understand how droughts can also occur um, at the same time. So uh, the basic idea is that um, the warmer the atmosphere, then the more water vapor it can hold. 
And a lot of climate scientists use the analogy of a kitchen sponge. So um, if, if the size of the kitchen sponge is larger, then it can soak up more water. Uh, but you can also squeeze out more water out of the sponge just simply because it has more water content. And so that's how the atmosphere works. Um, as we warm the atmosphere, it can hold more water vapor. And that water um, has to eventually come back to land and oceans in the form of precipitation. So that's the main process through which global warming leads to more intense storms. Um, and in fact, uh, for us as climate scientists, we often put a number on this increase. Uh, and that number is for each one degree Celsius of warming, uh, there is about 7% increase in the atmospheric water vapor. So that's that's how global warming leads to those intense storms. Now, on the other side of the coin, with warmer temperatures, um, we would expect higher evaporation rates. So more water can be evaporated from soil, plants, land, and so forth. Um, so if you really think about this, more evaporation of water from land means that we are losing water from land going to the atmosphere. Um, and this often leads to intense droughts um, and in some cases, longer dry spells, even though we might have occasionally some heavy extreme rainfall events. So those would be scattered over time, um, but still for most of the most of the year, you will have some dry conditions. So that's how the two can happen together. Um, maybe another concrete example um, is looking, and you mentioned California and Western US. Uh, for instance, um, California experienced what is called a mega drought from uh, 2012 to 2016. It was a very unprecedented drought event. Um, a lot of studies um, have estimated that uh, this drought was actually um, the second in record in, in terms of severity for the last 2,000 years or so. Um, and just immediately after that drought terminated in 2016, we had a very wet year, which was the 2016-2017 year. Um, so that's an example of how you might have drought conditions followed by wet conditions. Um, and in fact, the frequency and shifting between wet and dry conditions um, is also increasing. This is what climate scientists uh, sometimes call a whiplash effect. So we are constantly shifting between wet and dry conditions. So Professor, you're a climate scientist. I'm a political scientist. And sadly, this is an area where those two fields converge because this has now become a political question, right, of people doubting the role of humans in precipitating some of these conditions, the ways in which our human behavior, our priorities that we have, how we contribute to these problems, but also what I think is so critical about your work, what we can do to mitigate and maybe not necessarily reverse, but at least reduce some of these things as we go forward in the future. Listening to what you just described, the question for me is always, what can we do now? We see what's happening. We see what's on the horizon for the future. What can people do right now in their everyday actions, their collective actions to really have an impact for the better? 
when we think about climate change problem solving and what can be done uh, in order to address the problem of climate change, uh, we often frame the discussion into two components. Um, the first component is what we refer to as mitigation of climate change. And the second component is adaptation to climate change. And the easiest way to understand this is to use the analogy of uh, being uh, in a leaking boat where you have a hole in the boat. Um, so mitigation would be uh, patching the hole in order to prevent water from coming in. So mitigation is addressing the root cause of the problem. Uh, whereas adaptation would be something like uh, using a bucket to take the water out of the boat that is already inside the boat. Um, what does this mean is that adaptation um, is often concerned with dealing with the consequences of the problem. So in the context of climate change, um, mitigation means how can we reduce greenhouse gases emissions um, in order to slow down warming or stop it altogether? Whereas adaptation uh, refers to all the different approaches that we can implement in order to deal with the consequences of climate change. For instance, what we have been talking about uh, for the past uh, 10 minutes or so about extreme events, how can we deal with those events um, and also things such as sea level rise uh, or having uh, lower um, values and uh, lower rates of snow melt, for instance. So how can we deal with all of those things? So, um, so in terms of mitigation, um, there's a lot of work currently in the climate scientific community about um, not only reducing greenhouse gases emissions, uh, but also implementing approaches that can help us suck carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and store it in land and vegetation. Um, so a lot of the efforts surrounding afforestation and reforestation are intended to increase this carbon sink because plants can um, suck uh, carbon dioxide and we can store it there. Um, and similarly, there are many uh, approaches that are often used to sequester carbon inland. Um, so those are some of the scientific approaches uh, that are being done. Um, another line of research is about uh, deploying renewable energies. And this is something that is uh, related to, um, to the individual level, to a lot of the things that we decide to do. Uh, whether we want to have solar panels in, in our homes, uh, whether we want to drive electrical vehicles or uh, as opposed to gas vehicles and so forth. Um, so, so there are these um, actions as well related to renewable energy, which will help us reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases. Um, and then if you go deeper into the individual level, then there are uh, other things such as um, what diet uh, do we do we uh, have? Uh, is it um, a meat-based diet? Um, and you know, for instance, I've been talking about carbon dioxide, but methane is uh, a very lethal greenhouse gases uh, uh, greenhouse gas as well. Um, and uh, usually, farms and um, cows and so forth contribute a lot toward that. 
I want to ask you a question that I think leads from this idea of adaptation and mitigation. And as we think about these strategies, I think it's also important to think about where those strategies are deployed. Where is it working? Where do the people understand the need for it? And how does that affect their ability to move forward? And I'm thinking here of countries like Pakistan and India, where we've seen these occurrences, we see a tremendous need. So whether it is large populations of people or very difficult terrain, that can affect all the things that you've talked about. How important is it for us to think about not just which strategy we need to approach, but also where those strategies are happening? Right. That That is a very uh, complex debate. And I often think about um, mitigation uh, and adaptation uh, to climate change at the global scale as one of the most difficult problems. Uh, because it is a very highly multidisciplinary problem. You talked earlier about how uh, political science and climate science and and many other fields are needed to address the problem. Um, And there are all these considerations surrounding um, climate justice and to what extent can we really employ those solutions and strategies in different countries that have different needs. Um, So for instance, Um, In a lot of the developing countries, um, the main concern is really providing energy to people, energy and food. Um, And even though there has been a lot of research in solar energy, um, in wind energy, and a lot of these renewable energy technologies, uh, but uh, until now, they aren't as uh, reliable and effective as fossil fuels. And so for those developing countries, their uh, priority is really to provide energy and food regardless of the source. Um, And um, one of the main concerns that a lot of people have in the climate community is how can we as climate scientists from from the developed world uh, go and say, well, we figured out that fossil fuels is not good, stop doing this. Um, Who are we to actually say that? Uh, to developing countries. So that's, those are a lot of concerns. Um, I don't think I have, I don't think anyone has a a clear answer to those questions. Um, But I think it's an open area of research. And um, maybe what is needed to do is we need to have more interdisciplinary research in in this issue. Um, And I think a lot of academic institutions and universities around the world are now uh, establishing centers where they bring climate scientists together with with political scientists, statisticians, um, and and people from the business side and uh, all different kinds of disciplines in order to think of solutions and strategies that can really be applied um, in most countries. You've laid out really complex challenges but you've also laid out the need for complex solutions and approaches to that, that it's not a one-size-fit-all. These problems didn't occur overnight, and so we'll need a longer vision and approach. And it has me thinking, Professor, about young people who will inherit many of these challenges, but also have the, the power, the potential, the brilliance to really tackle them in ways that we haven't yet Given what you do, given the interest that you have, what you're saying, 
What would be your message to young people? Yes, uh, I think we all have a lot of hope in uh, young people. Um, and I think um, many of my students um, who are really coming from different disciplines um, seem to be very concerned about climate change. They are very aware of the problem and they really want to make uh, change. Um, so maybe my, my first message would be um, is that we need everyone. Um, ev everyone, no matter what your uh, disciplinary background is, you can definitely bring something new to the table and to the discussion. Um, and we've already talked about how this is a very multidisciplinary complex problem. Um, so uh, my message would be for, for all young people um, to, to really think about how they can contribute uh, towards solving uh, climate change, either from a mitigation perspective or adaptation perspective. And that thinking outside the box, especially if you are coming from a discipline other than climate science, um, is really important, is, is often something that is very, very valuable. Um, and I think uh, with the increasing frequency and intensity of, of extreme events that we've talked about earlier, what we have seen in the year 2023 and so forth, um, I think uh, people are, or more people are starting to realize that, you know, the the consequences of climate change are here. It this is not a far off problem that is projected to occur in the future. Um, it is it is already here, um, and I think that is it's also important to think uh, in that in that capacity, uh, because a lot of people sometimes think of climate change as a distant problem, either in space or time. Uh, we think it's distant space, uh, only affecting uh, melting glaciers and polar bears. Um, we think that it is distant in time, um, affecting our, our children or maybe grandchildren, but not necessarily, uh, we won't see the impacts during our lifetimes. And I think what we have seen in recent years just kind of uh, like refute those, those points. Well, I appreciate you for reminding us that it's here with us now. It will continue to be with us, but there are things that we can do in the areas of adaptability and mitigation. Dr. Mohamed Ambadi is Assistant Professor in the Department of Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering at the University of Michigan. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Letitia Peters and Joey Morgan. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to leave us a comment. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>